Modern leftist feminism is one of the most harmful forces in our society. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. So as you know, we usually cover politics, federal politics in Canada, all things kind of political in Canada. Sometimes we like to take a break from the day-to-day -day politics in our life and look at the bigger picture, look at culture and dive into some of the cultural critiques uh, that I myself have and that are prevalent out there. And one of my biggest critiques is against modern feminism, the Me Too movement, and the way that it denigrates men. It tells men that they're toxic, that they're destructive, while also ironically and contradictorily uh, telling women to be more like men. So these disastrous mixed messages in our society have had a catastrophic impact, especially on young people trying to find uh, you know, someone to spend their life with, someone uh, to get married with. And I think it's so important uh, to, to look, at these, uh, look at these harmful forces and to debunk them. I'm so pleased today to be joined by one of Canada's foremost public intellectuals who clearly and courageously debunks the harmful messages of modern feminism. So I'm pleased today to be joined by Janice Fiamengo. Janice is a retired professor of English literature at the University of Ottawa. For many years, she has been an outspoken critic of modern feminism and one, is one of the most prominent anti-feminist crusaders on social media. Janice hosts the Fiamengo Files on Studio Brule, where she challenges modern far-left feminism and the woke indoctrination at academia and universities. Back in August 2021, Studio Brule was removed from YouTube. It was censored. However, you can still find Janice's video on a new channel they created, Studio B. Janice is also the author of an excellent book, Sons of Feminism, Men Have Their Say, which was published back in 2017. So Janice, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to see you and have you on the show. Well, thank you very much, Candice. That's a very generous introduction. <laughs> thank you. I feel uh, very flattered. It's wonderful oh. to be on your show. Thank you. Yeah, it's so, it's so great to have you. So since I spoke to you last, you have retired from your position at the University of Ottawa. And I also recently learned that your YouTube channel was shut down and censored, which is such a shame because you have so many excellent videos up there. I was telling you before the interview started that I started watching those videos uh, back when you were covering the Gian Gameshi trial. And I know you covered the Brett Kavanaugh trial and you ha have so many interesting um, insights. So can you tell us a little bit about, uh, first of all, you leaving uh, the University of Ottawa and also uh, what happened with your YouTube channel? Yeah, well, I retired in 2019. And uh, I was fairly happy to to leave the university, although I was sad to leave um, many of my wonderful colleagues. But I find that the university as um, probably uh, everybody who is not a leftist would agree. Uh, it's a fairly uncomfortable place for dissident intellectuals or dissident thinkers in general, especially for those of us sort of on the conservative side of cultural politics. Uh, it's a place where you don't feel that you're able to make arguments about a whole wide range of hot button issues, um, you know, from a, from a wide variety of perspectives. So, so I retired then and um, Part of what I was looking forward to doing was was doing more writing and, and of course, doing um, writing more video scripts, uh, because that had been something I was doing since uh, 2015 at Studio Brule. And I had a long running series on academic feminism 
and its impact on modern culture. And, and my take generally was that what happens in academia, unfortunately, never stays in academia. It moves out into the wider world and it has real world impacts so that ideas about the oppressive male gaze or about women's lived experience and standpoint theory or about the, the creation of docile bodies through patriarchal power, all of those ideas become public policy, they become part of journalism, they become part of health policy, they invade the sphere of law, uh, the, all of the feminist um, uh, complicating of the idea of sexual consent, whether women can actually consent to sex in a patriarch, you know, allegedly patriarchal society in which women um, don't really have power or agency. All of those ideas have had a very significant impact in the wider society, often a very, very damaging one for individual men, uh, for freedom of speech. Uh, for um, the presumption of innocence in all sorts of quite horrific ways. And so I, I wanted to try to chronicle that and, and to show people where these ideas came from in academic feminism. And uh, yeah, and then last summer, uh, so we were going along, my, my producer Steve Brule and I were, were making more videos and all of a sudden we were permanently banned from YouTube. And of course, they never tell you why. They just tell you that you've in some way contravened the community guidelines. And so that was the end of, you know, all of these um, videos that we had produced. We lost all of the view numbers, of course, and the comments underneath, which were often fascinating conversations. That was really disappointing. But we have started up again now, and we're called Studio B. And uh, so uh, we're on YouTube again. Um, and I hope people will, uh, will come in and find us there. Um, I'm doing a new series on the history of feminism now, focusing especially on um, the, uh, the 19th century and the origins of, of the feminist movement. And my point is to show that although we have this idea that feminism started as a really good idea, um, you know, it was all about equality. Uh, certainly there were some feminists who wanted to take their equal share of the burdens as well as the rights of citizenship. But my point is that actually feminism was always uh, deeply implicated in man-hating, in toxic resentment, and in female moral superiority. And so I'm, I'm trying to bring out some of those strands in my analysis of, of early figures who were involved in the movement and the various issues that those early feminists tackled. Well, that was going to be my next question, because I, I know that uh, you refer to yourself as an anti-feminist. Um, the first time I ever heard that, I was in Washington, D.C., and I happened to go to a seminar um, hosted by Christina Hoff Summers, uh, one of my friends brought me. And I was just so, like, it was so enlightening to me to see her speak. And I know that she's also kind of takes that um, that name, an anti-feminist, but she would consider herself a first wave and probably even a second wave feminist, whereas I don't know that you have that same 
uh, connection. So I, I was going to ask you if you if you do consider yourself a feminist in any way. Uh, what, what, it, I think a lot of people agree that third wave and fourth wave feminism has really turned into a very negative man, masculine, man hating environment, and not just that, but also you know the whole um, intersectional you know white white supremacist accusations that we that we now hear. But uh, could could you maybe walk us through what the difference would be uh, between yourself and Christina Hoff Summers, and and what it is about first and second wave feminism that you that you I think I think I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I think that you um, reject. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a great question. I think um, uh, Christina Hoff Summers, whom I admire a great deal, she's done wonderful work. Her book, Who Stole Feminism, is just a primer in all of the inaccuracies and myths of feminist criticism and, and so-called feminist research. She's, she's a wonderful woman, but she calls herself an equity feminist. And there are other women around who are also critical of many of feminism's exaggerations and inaccuracies, women like Kathy Young and Camille Paglia and various others. Um, a wonderful uh, book um, or, or critic named Daphne Patai, who's got a book about sexual, the sexual harassment industry. I think she would also call herself an equity feminist. And um, yeah, I don't call myself any kind of feminist. I obviously believe that every person, regardless of their sex or any other inborn characteristics, should have an opportunity to make a contribution to society and that they shouldn't be hindered by any of their inborn characteristics. Um, but uh, I don't believe that there was ever a time that feminism was free of female moral superiority and attacks on, on uh, masculinity. For instance, if you go back to 1848, which is sometimes considered the beginnings of the first wave feminist movement in the United States. This was a women's rights convention at Seneca Falls, New York. And uh, those ladies, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was the primary mover and shaker, but there were other, there were some Quaker women involved. And they were advocating for women's greater freedoms and rights, including the right to vote. And they wrote a document uh, called um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name now. Um, the Declaration of Sentiments is what it's called. And uh, it says uh, as its central thesis that the history of mankind is a history of repeated usurpations and injuries by man against woman with the express purpose of establishing a tyranny over her. That's the whole history of mankind is men oppressing women. So that notion that the whole world can be divided up into an oppressor class and an oppressed class, which we now see you know, everywhere in intersectional feminism, and that the oppressor class is blameworthy and toxic and responsible for evil, while the oppressor, sorry, oppressed class is innocent you know, morally innocent, not responsible for evil. That idea was there at the core 
of first wave feminism, and you can trace it right through to the present day. So I don't believe there ever was a feminism that was really very interested in equality. It was always about punishing men for the alleged sins of their fathers. It was never about recognizing what men bring to civilization. It was never about recognizing the significance of masculinity in creating cultures where women and children could flourish. It was never about expressing any gratitude for men. It was always about blaming and about asserting the alleged moral superiority of women who were supposedly you know, much more nurturing, much more empathetic, um, wouldn't start wars, responsible for everything good and loving in the world. And so that um, notion of collective blame that all men now, especially, of course, all white, able-bodied, heterosexual men are responsible for everything evil. And even if they've never done anything bad in their lives, should have to shoulder that burden and apologize for their alleged privilege and take a step back and allow their sisters to come forward and collect the special scholarships and be hired through affirmative action programs and be given all sorts of special programming and advantages while they just have to accept that because they were born male, that they are second class citizens, that they're not only disposable, but they're blameworthy and hated, rightly hated. I just think that is a terrible ideology. There's nothing good to be had from it. And we should just jettison it entirely. Well, it's, it sounds a lot like communism and, and the sort of modern intersectional uh, situation where, you know, everyone is an oppressor and an oppressor. And one of the things about feminism that, that has struck me since I was in university myself is that it's so counter to our own lived experience in human nature. Like everybody knows that there are bad guys out there, right? And the, 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 the thing that you need in society to counteract bad guys is good guys, right? Like that's, that's, that's what our whole society is about, like having police officers there to protect you, you know, having uh, a, a male friend walk you home at night, you know, when you're in university, uh, getting married and having that partnership, uh, someone there to have children and have that, uh, that, uh, that unity that you need, uh, someone to go out to, you know, take care of the family, someone else to stay home with the children. And yet, th this message is, is, is so prevalent, especially in, in academic circles. Why isn't it refuted and debunked more often? Because to me, it's so counter to human nature that it, it almost doesn't even need to be said because it's, it's almost laughable. Yeah, it, it, it is so bizarre. Uh, the contradictions in feminism are so evident to anyone who thinks about it, even for a few minutes, exactly the points that you just made. Men are told over and over again that they are by nature violent and that their masculine qualities like uh, aggression, assertiveness, competitiveness, risk taking, etc. All these things are allegedly toxic. They should become more like women. But then they're also expected to step forward if they see a woman in distress. And they're expected even sometimes to risk their lives and men do risk their lives for women, even for strangers. Um, and uh, somehow that toxic aspect of their masculinity is required in particular situations if they're encountering another toxic man or a threat to a woman. So the, the, the contradictions right there in how men are supposed to behave are never really clearly resolved. And as you say, we all know that um, 
you know, in our society, there are many men who absolutely love women and are interested in working and indeed sacrificing and have created this incredibly um, flourishing, secure civilization that we're now fortunate enough to live in um, out of, in many cases, love for women and the desire to create safe spaces for women and children to flourish in. Uh, and yet none of that is acknowledged. So we live in a strange society in which um, the, I think the, the mutual recognition and reciprocity between the sexes that is so important for a functioning society has broken down. Men are still expected to care for and support and applaud women. They're expected to encourage women to enter all of the spheres that were once mainly masculine spheres of endeavor, including the military, policing, firefighting, all those areas are, have now been open to women and they're supposed to, men are supposed to welcome women into those spaces. And yet it's not clear what women are supposed to do in response to men and what, what men are entitled to in our society. That even word entitlement has become kind of a dirty word. Uh, so yeah, there are just so many contradictions that I think really prevent, especially young people being indoctrinated into this toxic ideology prevents us from recognizing what is good in our society and what should be preserved. One of the other contradictions that I always noted was that uh, from the time I was in university, I took one women's studies course and I found it to be so lacking any intellectual rigor. It was so frustrating to me to hear the discourse of the other students. There would be like, like not exaggerating, uh, a girl would cry like almost every class just talking about something. And it was, it was just, I, I couldn't even attend the class. I actually made an arrangement with the professor where I would do the lectures um, in the library and I, I wouldn't go to class because it was too infuriating to me. But that's an aside um, that, that, that we, we're told that men have all of these negative qualities. And yet at the same time, women, especially in my generation, were told to be more like men. Um, you know, when it came to sexuality, uh, even like public drunkenness and, 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 and you see more and more women going out and, and, and drinking and that's like part of the culture, um, something that, that, that didn't used to be the case, for instance, in my mother's generation. Um, and, and, and focus so much on career, like to the extent where it's like you wake up and you're 30 and you're like, oh, I forgot to get married and have kids. And, 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 and I'm like not setting myself up for an important uh, well, well-rounded life because I've been focused so much on career, and I know so many women um, in my age group in their thirties uh, who who have neglected that sort of like personal aspect. So, so whilst telling men that they should be less like men, we're telling women to be more like men, more like men. And I think that the result is that both men and women are sort of miserable unless they have some wisdom to go back and look at the sort of traditional lifestyles that 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 people had you know what did your parents do what did your grandparents do what did your great-grandparents do and and looking at that wisdom as opposed to the sort of modern day advice that, that people are given so I, I, I'm wondering what your advice is to young people people in their 20s people in university now both men and women about how to engage in relationships what the proper role for men and women is because I think I, I, I know so many people now that you know they're not married because they can't find someone who, you know, what they're looking for, because they think that, oh, the men my age are terrible, or women my age are terrible. And I can kind of understand and relate, but I'm wondering what, uh, what your advice is for young people about gender roles. 
It's a really big issue. And, uh, you know, you're right that uh, that women are encouraged to think that their fulfillment and sense of life satisfaction is going to come from achieving what men have traditionally been exhorted to achieve. And, you know, there are all sorts of studies now coming out showing that women in general are much less happy and less satisfied with their lives than they were earlier. In fact, uh, there was a huge study by two professors out of the University of Pennsylvania that looked at all sorts of different surveys. It was one of these meta studies that, that collected data over the last 50 years. And it clearly found that starting in the 1980s, women in general have progressively become less and less satisfied with their lives, both absolutely in comparison to women of previous generations and also in comparison to men, interestingly enough. <laughs> and um, so, you know, as women's um, economic opportunities have clearly improved, as women are freer to do, you know, take on professional careers, uh, you could even say as as women are are freer, as you pointed out, to engage in uh, more masculine and and less moral kinds of behaviors. Um, women can divorce their husbands and live off their husband's earning. They can abort their children uh, with impunity. Uh, they can walk in the slut walk and declare their right to be as sexually promiscuous as they want and nobody dare say, say no, and yet they're not happier. And the researchers themselves who are feminist researchers really couldn't, they had no uh, way of offering an explanation. And they, they ended up falling back on things like, well, the feminist movement, the gains of the feminist movement have actually improved the lives of men more than they've improved the lives of women. That's what they were reduced to speculating. Or women still take on more of the emotional burden of caring and, and looking after a household. And that's why they have greater stress. You know, they made up all sorts of uh, answers. And it seemed to me that a big part of the answer was that women no longer have a sense of what it means to be a good woman in the world. Women are no longer exhorted to pursue virtue, feminine virtue. Men still have an idea of what it means to be a good man, despite all the slander, all the anti-male discourse around, which is a very heavy thing for men to have to take on, but they still know what a good man is. A good man is a man who achieves and makes a contribution to his society. He looks after his family, he protects and provides, he seeks justice, he defends the weak. You know, we have all of those, those classic masculine virtues. They're still in place. Whereas what is a good woman now? If you ask a feminist what a good woman is, she'll just laugh and say that those are um, ideas that, that tried to create women and, and turn them into dupes of the patriarchy. So she'll say a good woman is a woman who smashes patriarchal oppression and subvert, subverts the social order. We used to have ideas about femininity, about um, being a, a, a good helpmeet, about being nurturing and caring, about looking after one's family, uh, the maternal virtues, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things, um, being chaste, being, being uh, sexually virtuous, being faithful, all of that. And um, I think it's time that we have to seriously start thinking again about what the feminine virtues are and why they have mattered historically and why they still matter today. 
Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I listened to recently, uh, Jordan Peterson did an interview with, I think it was Ben Shapiro, and uh, Ben asked something about like, is there is there a, a, a example in like mythology or in like Disney movies or something of like the, the female that, that, that everyone ought to aspire to, that women ought to aspire to? And I think Jordan Peterson talked about Belle from Beauty and the Beast because, um, you know, she was, she liked to read and she was interesting and she was introspective. She didn't care about society. And there was this, you know, um, the, 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 the sort of main guy in the, in the, um, movie that everyone liked in in the town. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Beauty and the Beast, but uh, Gaston, he you know he was the hunk in the town, and all the women liked him, but Belle didn't like him because she thought that he was too arrogant. And then instead, she she chose this other man. So the story was kind of more about her, in 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 regard to uh, you know getting married or or who she who she chose to partner with. But it was just the question itself was an interesting question because we have a lot of stories of men and great men still in 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 our culture whereas uh, less so for women. So maybe I'll put that question to you. Are there, are there any women in, in literature, you have an English literature background, um, that you would point to as, as what you think of as an ideal woman in, 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 in myth or in stories? Oh, gee, that's a good question. I don't think I have a good answer, but um, you know, my favorite author is Jane Austen. And, uh, and she was deeply interested in the question of the virtues um, both the Christian and the classical virtues, and her, she is interested in, in masculine virtue, certainly, but she focuses especially on, on heroines and on how they have to learn these various virtues of, of uh, you know, and, and they're the, the, the traditional virtues of, of bearing up under suffering and um, being faithful and enduring and um, uh, examining uh, the self in order to look clearly at one's um, weaknesses, um, overcoming selfishness and, and narcissism, caring more about others than about oneself. You know, those, those are the, the very traditional kinds of, of virtues. And I, I and I, I think as I get older and older, I appreciate the the importance of that of caring about others, and um, you know not not being selfish, making a contribution to one's family, uh, finding the balance in one's life so that one can give to the people one loves. I think being nurturing, being empathetic, we're, we're told that those are the virtues that, that women naturally possess, but I think modern feminism often encourages women to be the opposite of those things. So, um, so for me, that's a, that's a, Austin's heroines offer really interesting examples of uh, good women learning to examine themselves and to become stronger and better. Oh, that's interesting. That's great advice. Well, I, I did have one other question that I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned researchers at the University of Pennsylvania, and it reminded me that I wanted to ask you about this uh, trans swimmer named Leah Thomas. So the uh, NCAA swimming champions are happening, the championship is happening this week, and there's a trans swimmer on the University of Pennsylvania team, so a biological male who competed with the men's team and then uh, had a transition or, or began identifying as a woman. And now that that, that Leah Thompson swims with women has just shattered all of the records. And I, I've been reading into it. I, I take some interest in it because it's a fascinating sort of human event story. And when I read about it, I mean, it, there's two emotions that I feel. One is like 
just uh, a kind of remorse. Like I feel sorry for this individual because it's such a spectacle taking away from the sport. I feel sorry for the girls involved. I feel pity for everybody involved in the situation because it's so excruciating uh, seeing this tension between a clearly, you know, biological male who can swim at a pace that's just nothing like what these women can swim at. And then also a sense of anger and frustration that you know, you have this separate uh, division. NCAA still splits sports into men and women. And the whole purpose of women's sports as a dedicated uh, separate event for men's is so that women can succeed and women can have their own, uh, you know, uh, can compete on a level playing field. And, and it's just so so much um, injustice here that it's, it's, it's so out of hand. So I wanted to um, get your take on this because it kind of adds in another element to your critiques on feminism. How do... Uh, trans women like Leah Thomas uh, fit into that? Yeah, well, that's a really big subject. And I agree with you that, um, you know, I, my heart goes out to everybody involved. And uh, the, 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 the trans issue in general is a really complicated one. Um, but if we're going to focus just on, on trans women in women's sport, it's uh, a fascinating instance of one of the consequences of a significant part of feminist theory, and it also really exposes some of the incoherencies of the feminist position on gender. Now, it seems to me, just to cut to the chase, it seems to me clear that Leah Thomas is a man biologically. I don't have any, pro any problem calling Leah Thomas she and treating her as a woman in general society. But uh, Leah Thomas has only made the decision to transition a couple of years ago. She's been, I think, doing a year of, of hormone therapy. Her body is still a male body. And to pretend that it isn't, that it isn't so much significantly stronger and faster than a female body. I mean, men have a larger muscle mass, a much larger heart and lungs, uh, their upper body strength is significantly greater than women's. Men uh, have much greater hand grip strength. Um, you know, their their bones are are heavier and larger. You, you know, you, a, a year of hormone therapy doesn't change that. And and so, if we can't recognize the fundamental truth of biological reality, we are really at sea as a society. Um, and, you know, and there are other examples of, of this happening all across sport. Uh, there was a case of a mixed martial art fighter named um, mixed martial arts uh, fighter named Fallon Fox, who actually um, broke a woman's skull in a competition. And the woman said that she'd never encountered strength like that in all the years she'd been competing in mixed martial arts um, because Fallon Fox has a man's body. And there are many other examples of this. And um, yet, you know, I can't help sometimes but feel a kind of rueful, not satisfaction. Well, yeah, it is satisfaction. I have to admit, I do. I feel a kind of satisfaction because feminists have for decades claimed that almost all of gender, sex itself as a biological condition, 
is a social construct. You can find, um, you know, PDFs of articles by major feminist theories. There's one by Judith Lorber and Yancey Martin called the socially constructed body, where they essentially argue that although there is an underlay of biological reality, it we really don't even know what it is because it is so thoroughly constructed. And they're they're talking about women in sport, and their fundamental argument is that there is really no difference between women and men in sport that we can definitely point to, and that much of what we think we know about the differences between male and female bodies is as a result of social conditioning. Women are supposedly trained, you know, from the time they're two or three to act differently from men. They move differently in space. They, they, they're told they throw like a girl and therefore they do throw like a girl. Like they make those arguments over and over again. If we had not allowed those arguments to achieve credence in academia and then moving out into the wider world, we would not be where we are now with this bizarre situation where a good portion of um, feminist intellectuals and others claim that simply by deciding that a man wants to be a woman, that that man becomes a woman. It, it's truly bizarre. And on the other side, of course, then there is this um, sort of aggrieved, entitled anger on the part of uh, other feminist women who do not appreciate the encroachment into women's sports and other female domains of male persons claiming to be women. And, but that falls often back into a kind of feminist um, grievance argument about how these men are oppressing women. This is just another example of patriarchal oppression. These men want to be women because allegedly, you know, men hate women and but somehow want to destroy women and take over their spaces. And so, and, and that I think, you know, that really gets at that tension that is so much a part of feminism. On the one hand, women are no different from men. We should never say that women can't do certain things because that's sexist. And yet now suddenly again, we hear that women need special rights. They need special women only spaces where you know, male bodies must not intrude. Uh, all the while though, um, over the last 30 years, male spaces have been continually eroded. Um, you know, if, if men in a fire hall said, you know, look, we're really uncomfortable with the idea of having women working as firefighters along us because they are simply, they don't have the strength. They can't do what is required to fight fires. Same with the military. All sorts of standards have been lowered in these various formerly male domains in order to admit women and to pretend that there is no significant difference between women and men. So I think we have to stand on the, the bedrock ground of biological reality. If we've lost that, we really can't have sane conversations about any of these issues. Uh, and I'm not that sympathetic to either side of the feminist debate uh, on the question of trans women in sports, because I think both um, you know, buy into various feminist postulates, either anger at, at men, uh, and, and, and exaggerated claims 
about uh, toxic masculinity and patriarchal oppression or the gender as a social construct position, neither of them is helpful in finding a sane solution to these kinds of conflicts. I tend to agree. I, I sometimes just sort of sit back and laugh at the two uh, sides of the left, you know, warring over this issue. Uh, the, the only reason I, 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 I want uh, uh, this issue to be resolved is because I have a daughter and I want her to be able to enjoy women's sports like I did growing up. I loved playing sports. I was on a, a hockey team. Uh, I played with the boys until I hit uh, about 12 and then I went on to a girls team. I played soccer, baseball, and I, and I love that. And the idea that perhaps if we continue down this path, like the idea of women's sports just simply won't exist because we're, we'll, we'll go back to, to mixing. So that's, that's, that's part of the reason why I think it's important to uh, push back at least and, and try to find some truth here because truth seems to be um, left behind. Well, uh, Janice, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your clear explanation of these issues. It's always really a pleasure uh, to speak to you. So I, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining the show. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Obviously, we could go on for much longer. There's so many fascinating issues. So thanks a lot for, for having me on your wonderful program. Well, thank you. I'm definitely going to have to have you uh, back again. So Janice Fumengo, thank you so much. I'm Candice Malcolm, and this is The Candice Malcolm Show.